Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you wanna learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Hi everyone, welcome back to part two of my conversation with David Froz. Like I said in the previous episode, our recording was a little different than the normal structure of story and action items because to be quite honest, it blended in too well together. So now this episode is part two from our conversation. Thank you again for coming back and enjoy the show. Now, when when people are wanting to do a deal with you, right? And then let's say like they meet all the check marks and they're ready to go. Are there certain questions that you ask them as part of like your vetting process to see if they are ready to go? Yeah. I mean, kind of like what we talked about earlier is, you know, we have our, our guide requirements. Um, so often I get a phone call and, and we start talking about the deal and they're really excited about the deal and it's, you know, 20 units and they've got some experience previously and they want to start doing deals with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and they're looking for non-recourse and they want, you know, the 30 year amortization and the low rate and everything that we have to offer. And then they say, yeah, and I'm buying it for 350,000. So, so that, that's certainly one, you know, one of the common kind of disqualifiers that, that I uh, see in, in conversations that I have quite often is, is just saying, I know it's I know it's 20 units, but you're buying it for you know 25,000 a door. I'm not gonna be able to 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 lend on it. It's just too small for me. And I, I'll usually try to help set them up with a lender that that can finance that transaction, but I'm always very clear if it's if it's something that I don't think I can get done, I'm usually pretty clear about that right up front. And if it's a deal that I do think I can get done, but it has you know, some other nuances that we really need to get to the bottom of, um, that's when I start asking other detailed questions. So, I mean, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, and then it's, you know, the net worth and liquidity, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes I just get a sense if I'm talking to someone who, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm talking to someone who's 26 years old and they want to go buy a $5 million property and, I sort of get the sense that they're, yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) But I get the sense that they're, they're the only one on the the deal. They're, they're looking, you know, I don't know, they're, they're trying to figure out how to do the deal and they're asking, Oh, can you go to 90% loan to value or whatever? And I, so then I have to ask the question or, or make it clear, like we need a net worth of, you know, 5 million or more in order to do this deal. So do you have, that yourself or are you bringing partners or are you going to kind of buddy up with a syndicator or something like that? How are, how are you going to make this deal work? And sometimes deals die because of that or don't die, but they don't get off the ground with me because of that. And again, that that's a sort of deal that, that I would have to help them um, and they would have to go find 
another lender to do that deal because for certain reasons I wouldn't be able to finance it. So the, it. what I would say kind of jumping back to your previous question is one of the things that I would encourage borrowers not to do is hide details about a property that they don't think are going to be beneficial for the loan. You might do that when you're applying to a residential lender for financing on a single family, you might not want to disclose that the roof is 20 years old instead of the 15 years old that the appraiser estimated that it might be, or I don't know, you might not want to tell them that the furnace is 50 years old or something like that, <laughs> you know, but the reality yeah. is there are very few things that if the borrower doesn't disclose them, we're not going to find out anyway. And I don't mean find out after the fact and be upset about it, but find out before the fact and blow the deal up in the middle of the process. So, we, I mean, we do a lot of diligence again, like I mentioned, a lot goes into underwriting these loans, not only the property and the collateral, but the financials of the property and also the sponsorship and the background searches, and the credit worthiness and all of that. So if you've had a bankruptcy, tell me. If you're a prior <laughs> felon, tell me yeah. if you have, I have a client who doesn't have a credit score because he's never used, you know, revolving oh. lines. He just doesn't have a credit score. You know, he told me right out of the gate, he said, I don't have a credit score. So we worked through that. That's something we were able to work through, but things like that, even just weird things about a property that you don't think it's relevant to the loan. And it may not be, but by not disclosing it, by not telling me, it puts me in a position where I'm not able to determine whether it matters. I'm not able to mitigate the potential for that to kind of mess up the deal. There are a lot of things that we can work through if we know about them, but the mm -hmm. further it gets in the process and the more money that gets spent on you know, an appraisal report, an engineering report, attorneys, uh, other fees, zoning, all this stuff, money's getting spent the entire loan process. And the further along you get, the closer you get to closing, the harder it is to kind of get ahead of these issues, right? Because you're behind the issues now. So I, I would just encourage everybody when you're working with your loan officer, particularly if it's a, a direct lender like myself, um, I think some borrowers think, oh, he's with the bank. He's with the bank. We don't want to tell him anything. We don't have to. And I sort of understand that mentality, but uh, the reality is my, my job is to facilitate the loan process. So my job is not to, to make the loan process as difficult for the borrower as possible. It's to make it as easy for the borrower as possible while also ensuring that my underwriting team, my credit team and, and my company are doing good loans. So I would just encourage you and, and other investors that when you're working with, with me um, or, or anybody that you're working with, you just be open about whatever you know about the deal because you are not the expert in a financing process. And so you don't necessarily know what's a trigger or, you know, what, what shakes things up, you know, too much. And, and uh, you know, a lot of stuff is interconnected too. So, I mean, yeah. We're on calls weekly, basically, with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So if a guideline changes, even if you think that you know, 
you've done a, you've done a Fannie loan or you've done a Freddie loan and it wasn't a problem previously, like things do change. So if there's a nuance, something unique about a deal or your personal situation, it's something that you always want to talk about up front so that we can work through it together. Hmm. Now, I can't imagine, you know, when, when they do come to you and they have a deal, right. That's your first time meeting them and they're like, Hey, can you finance this? <laughs> so when, when we talk about mending the relationship and building that relationship, how soon should you be talking to your loan officer before let's say, yeah, I mean, believe it or not, that does happen. What's the success rate on that? <laughs> a bar. Wow it just makes it a lot more work for everybody involved, mm. but, or a lot more of a rush job um, for everyone involved. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've had, I've had borrowers that say, Hey, I got this deal on our contract. Um, you know, if, if you, if you're familiar with, with the process and you've got a contract that's 90 days or 120 days, that's probably fine. But to show up out of the blue and say, Hey Dave, I've never met you before. Uh, you don't know my financial situation. You haven't vetted me. You haven't looked at this property. I have 45 days to close. Oh, and by the way, it's it's got a little bit of uh, hair on it that we're going to have to get some approvals for. You know, let's go. I mean, that 45-day timeline with that situation I just described is pretty tight. So it puts me in a bind. It puts the bar on a bind. puts the seller in a bind. Mm-hmm. Everyone involved is kind of working on a compressed timeline. So first thing, I mean, I mean, your question is great. I mean, it's a really important question. I always tell people, I mean, everyone's at a different stage in their investment um, life. Um, I tell people, if you get to a point in a deal where you feel like you need that professional guidance, that expertise from a lender, you know, that's when you need to reach out to me. If you are going into best and final, and you want to, you know, the broker has told you that you need to be another 50 or a hundred thousand dollars higher, but your model is telling you that you can't do it. And the only lever left to pull is the debt and see what that actual interest rate is going to be. I mean, that's the time when you would reach out and we would spend a few days, you know, chopping the numbers and, and seeing what we can do, uh, see what our rate's going to be. And, and maybe that helps, maybe it doesn't, but at least, you know, what you can go in with your best and final offer. Some people like you, you may reach out to me, you get a deal and, and you decide you want to put an LOI in and you think you have an, a number, but you, you're just not entirely sure about how the debt's going to work. That might be when you reach out to me. I have clients that, that don't reach out to me in, until they're a day or two away from signing a PSA because I've worked with them enough that they know what the issues are. And if they haven't already talked to me, it's because they know that there aren't any issues that we need to be concerned about, or they know that they're going to structure enough time in the contract where we're not going to be in a bind and we're going to have plenty of time to work through all the issues. So again, it's different for everybody, but just, I would encourage everybody to just think about, think about what you do in your daily life and, and when people come to you with things and, and certain things, you know, your car breaks down and it's never a good time to have your car break down. But if you knew three days ago, your car was going to break down, you'd set up some alternatives and you'd plan your schedule around it and you'd figure out how to make it happen. So same thing with me, you know, and anyone else in my position, 
we have busy lives. We got a lot going on too. So try not to drop us, uh, you know, a file one day and say, Hey, I, I need to get the financing going tomorrow. That that's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. So just, you know, try to be respectful of people's time. And other than that, I mean, for me personally, reach out to me whenever you feel like you need, need my guidance. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Respecting other people's time and since <laughs> is, is, is extremely important because I would hate to just like drop it and say like, Hey, I need your help. Like take care of this, please. Yeah. But no, nah, that's, that's good to know. Now you, you mentioned uh, underwriting and model uh, and now we're just going to go into to the action items of this episode since we're breaking, we're combining this into just one long episode. Now action items, like one thing that I was thinking of is I want to get my, make sure my underwriting is right and efficient and lean, um, especially when I want to, sh- you know, show my underwriting to you as the lender. Now, let's say I'm practicing and I, and I want to make sure that we are on the same page for what you look at. Uh, I have, you know, I'm looking for a deal. Let's say uh, I'm practicing and I, and I get a rent roll and a T12. What should I do first with the rent roll in the, in the T12? Like what are the first line items that you look for? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I think you should do with the T12 and the rent roll is really give it a detailed scrub on your own and make sure that there's nothing out of the ordinary and try to get questions answered that you have uh, on those. And, And for example, I often get deals like this where a borrower sends me a rent roll on the T12 and says, Hey, like, this is what we're thinking we're going to offer. Can you take a look and see what the debt would look like? And I open the rent roll and it might be, you know, 60 units. And I see two or three units that have $0 as rent, but they're occupied units. Hmm. And I go back to them and say, why are these three units have zero rent? And they say, oh, I'll go back. I'll go ask the broker. Um, That's an important question that if you've gone through the rent roll, you would have noticed that and you'd say, that's weird. It's an occupied unit that's been occupied for six months. Why is there zero dollars in the rent? And it usually has to do with the software that the rent roll is run through. You know, it spits it out, but something was fingered incorrectly in the system or something so it spits it out with zero in rent or you know whatever it's pulling from but so there's always an explanation but you're running numbers on a rent roll with zero changes everything so maybe you can only offer 1.4 million you add in an actual rent number for those two units and now you're at 1.5 million or something right so so it makes a difference. And so that's the first thing I would do if I were you is really scrub those numbers, look at major large expenses in one particular month of a trailing 12. And that's that's another reason, you know, you and, and your listeners should should really consider, even on small deals, um, really pushing the seller and the broker for a trailing 12 because you can't pull out trends, you can't pull out major one-time expenses. It, by just looking at a year-end P&L because it's all rolled up. But if you actually have a trailing 12, you can look at the utilities and say, oh, why did utilities, why did water spike? I just had this on a recent deal. Why did water spike in October, November, December? It, it tripled or it doubled or whatever, what happened? And 
you know, in this case, it was a, a water leak, but you won't see those things if you don't have a trailing 12. And you can do that with every category. You know, you can do it, you can, you can see the insurance was, you know, $400 a month. And then all of a sudden in June, it jumped up to $600 a month. And that was the renewal. And okay, so maybe I'm going to have to go with that number. You know, I might, you know, it's just a guide, right? So that's the first thing I would do. And then when you send it to me, send me as much of your observations as possible, because otherwise I'm going to observe the same things. And I'm going to come back to you and ask you for those answers anyway. So, you know, frankly, it's often better for everyone's time to, if you're going to send me a deal, call me up and say, hey, I'm going to send you this deal. Here are a couple of things that I noted. So when you look through it, just, you know, keep that in mind. And then you send me the deal. And when I look through it, I say, oh, he already told me about that. He already told me about that. He already told me about that. And I don't need to ask those questions of you and figure out you know, redo all the, the effort that you've just put in um, and I can get you feedback quicker because of it. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but you know, yeah, that's no, kind it of the first step. And certainly when you send over a package, include as much as you can. I know even if you're just looking to get some feedback on the numbers, also send over the OM. If you have the market report, send that over. If you have any other listing information or you know, tax bills that the seller or the broker provided you or whatever, send that stuff over too. Because if I need the tax bills, I have to go pull them myself if you don't send them over. And if you have them, it just, again, it helps me get you a quote or, you know, some feedback even quicker if you just send me everything you've already got. Now for certain uh, line items, I know that some of them like may vary per market. How do you know, like if, if one is a little bit higher in, than the other, like, like for example, like I could be looking at a, at a deal in Austin and uh, you know, utilities are a little bit higher for, or actually let's, let's use like, the twin cities, for example, utilities are a little bit higher for, for gas just because they're using their, they're, they're using their heating, their just because it's cold, I can't, I can't even think of the, the word right now, but it's cold. They're using their heater a lot more. And yeah. like, how would you hedge against that and know that, like, hey, this is a little bit higher than normal or? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good question. Every market's different, but things are kind of broken down into property specific or market specific expenses and uh, variable expenses. Mm -hmm. um, so your taxes, your insurance, your utilities, those are generally considered your fixed, your kind of market specific or property specific expenses. Utilities, to your point, are very property specific. So if you and I have properties that are on opposite sides of the street and your property is all bills paid and by, by the landlord, that is, and my property, everything is submetered or individually metered to the tenants, I may pay 50 bucks a month in utilities and you may pay a thousand bucks a month in utilities. So utilities are very property specific. Similarly with insurance, I mean, insurance is market specific, but it can also be property specific if there've been claims uh, in the last few years, or if they're, you know, an elevator or uh, swimming pools or anything that adds liability or risk to the 
insurance carrier, you know, that will, that will, you know, could, I mean, I'm not an insurance expert, but that could potentially impact your insurance versus a comparable property around the corner or something like that. Taxes very widely across the country. Generally they're, they're by County, but some rules are also by state. You know, some states have rules about there are discounts for early payment or there are restrictions on how much of an increase a county can assess, uh, increase the assessment on a property from year to year. So it might be a, a 5% cap from year to year, a 10% cap from year to year. There are some markets where the, the taxes are, the assessment is based on like full market value. So million dollar property might have a million dollar assessment, but then the interest rate might be half a percent or 1% or something. Um, and then in a different market, that million dollar property might have an assessment that's 10%, but then the rate is 8%. So you're, you know, the, 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 the assessment is lower as a percentage of the, the value of the purchase uh, of the property, but then the, the, the millage rate is higher. So every, every market, every county, every property will, will underwrite differently as far as taxes and that sort of thing. So um, those basically taxes, insurance, utilities, you need to do your diligence as to making sure you're underwriting the correct numbers. Um, you know, with taxes, do a tax analysis, speak to other people in the market and see what, what taxes look like. With insurance, have a good insurance agent who's going to get you some preliminary quotes that you can underwrite too. With utilities, you know, very property specific. You're going to want to use current operations at the property and and maybe get some utility bills to make sure they're not, you know, taking some taking some expenses out of the out of the the PL. Then you've got your RM and your payroll and your admin and your marketing and, and contracts landscaping and all of that stuff. Um, those are all variable expenses. So uh, a newer property may not have the same needs as far as repairs and maintenance, but maybe it's got a big field or lots of nice trees that cost more to landscape, or you know, maybe the property is small, so they don't have on-site payroll, but they have a higher management fee because you know the, the management company needs to to get paid for taking on the responsibility of managing the property or, you know, some properties have cable contracts. And so they have a cable expense that other properties might not have, or um, they have an elevator. And so they have an elevator maintenance expense or they have a septic. So they have a septic maintenance expense. All these different things are, are variable. And so still property specific, but that's where the underwriting, you know, the, the rubber really meets the road. You got to kind of dig in and, and, do some analysis to, as to what what your needs are going to be to, to keep that property maintained and operating. Have you ever uh, just seen someone just use the actuals and yes. uh, and then they're just like, "Hey, what can I get for this?" <laughs> yes, always. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's pretty it's pretty common for the borrower to um, to just send a package and and not send a pro forma or an operating budget as to how they plan to operate the property. And then when I ask them for it, they say, oh, we're basically just underwriting exactly what's in place. Does it that work? doesn't necessarily work in the borrower's favor, but it sometimes 
doesn't work against them. I mean, it, it really depends. So hmm. some sellers will run capital improvements through their operations as, as operating expenses. So you'll see Interesting. two, three, four thousand. What's that? No, I just interesting because I, I usually hear you, people use uh, capex. What is it under the, under the line and where they don't put it? Yeah, in right. Yeah, so I mean, when we're underwriting expenses. property, we want to know how the property operates on an annual basis to keep the property maintained and running smoothly. Because we analyze capital improvement needs, you know, a new roof or a new parking lot, we analyze that stuff separately. That stuff is not really an operating expense. You replace a parking lot, you might not need to replace it again for 10 years. You know, so, so that's not an annual recurring operating expense, but sometimes sellers will have all that stuff, not just sellers, but, but if I'm doing a refinance too, sometimes the owner of the property will have that stuff in the P&L, the, the operations. And, and the reason for that most of the time is because it's simpler for them to do it that way. and when it comes to tax time, the more that they've run through the property, the, the lower their tax liability is because the lower their net operating income and their gross profit on the property is. So it's, I see it, it's very common, but for our underwriting purposes, we don't wanna underwrite two or $3,000 a unit in R&M because that's basic, basically like redoing the unit every single year with maintenance. Doesn't make right? sense. So, so that's, that's pretty uncommon that, that we would see a number like that in reality. Um, okay. So generally, when we see something like that in the P&L, we know that there's some sort of uh, disconnect where capital improvements are not being accounted for separately. Good to know. Good to know. Good to know. I th- I'm good on, on my questions. I think I have a lot to work on, especially when it comes to you know practicing my underwriting and just taking observation from the T12 and just like noticing certain spikes. And I'll definitely be sharing you know, some of my observations that I've seen with you when I well, am. For, I mean, the last thing I would say on that, as far as you know, looking for things that you can do to improve and, and sharpen up what you're working on and what you're doing is just keep in mind that becoming an expert in a market is really valuable. Not everybody invests that way. Some people invest and they, they have a model and they stick to it and they're looking for a certain return or they're looking for deals that are certain cap rates or certain mm-hmm. IRRs or certain cash on cash, whatever the metric they're using, that's what they're looking for. And they're looking for that anywhere in the country or whatever. But if you're looking mostly in a particular market or a couple of markets, you're going to start to see the trends. Um, you're going to look at, you know, a dozen deals and they're all going to have operations that range between, you know, four and $6,000 a unit in expenses. And then you're going to see a property that is operating at $8,000 a unit. And that might be a property that has a lot of value upside because you know, you can buy it accounting for operations that have $8,000 a unit in expenses. And you know that based on all of your analysis of these other deals, you can probably cut that expense load down from 8,000 to 6,000, which is 25%. So, you know, you, you still need to do your diligence. You still want to make sure again, like there isn't some crazy, you know, septic maintenance contract or cable contract or, or um, some other thing at the property, you know, the, the utility structure or something 
that makes that property just run higher expenses. But provided you do your diligence and you find that no, this seller is just you know spending too much money, or they're paying their manager too much, or they're they're overpaying for flooring, or they're overpaying for for you know their trash contract, and you know maybe they're paying seven hundred dollars a month for their trash contract, but you just call the trash guy, uh, trash company, and they said they'll do it for two fifty, and so you know you, you can save a couple bucks right there. So doing that kind of diligent. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that if you just look at a one deal in this market and then another deal in another market, it takes a lot more work to, to pull that stuff out. Cause you have to really dig through lots of comps to get that same, that same expertise. But if you've already been looking in this market for 12 months and you've looked at a dozen or 20 or a hundred deals in this market, you're going to already have the comps in your head. So mm. I would just, I would just say, you know, as far as one of the things that you can do, I mean, it, it really just comes down to reps. It's reps in. I think any, anybody will tell you that. I mean, you, you, you need in order to get good at underwriting and feel confident in your underwriting, you're going to want to just get some reps and whether that means just looking at lots of deals yourself or looking at, <clears throat> looking at, lots of deals that syndicators are putting together and, and you're on their mailing list. And so you're seeing their deals and how they underwrote their deals or whether it's getting reps by, you know, actually going through the transaction process and talking with me and, you know, figuring out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Those mm -hmm. reps are going to be critical. Good to know. Pick a market, really know that market and just evaluate those deals and find those little nuances of, of what makes sense and when you are underwriting when it comes to expenses and see where you can cut down and you sort of get an idea for how much things cost. Not yeah, a bit. So, I mean, it works the same on the income side. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you compare a deal in, in Dallas with a deal in, I don't know, DC or Boston right. or something like that, yeah, yeah. you're, you're, you're not comparable. So you go down to Dallas and you may say, Oh, these rents seem really cheap. I can increase these rents, but rents, you know, are by market. So you might be right. Maybe the rents are low, but maybe the market, you know, maybe they're, they're at market, you know, so you really just need to understand everything. I mean, Every expense varies by market. You know, there are some markets where you can get really high quality labor for relatively cheap compared to other markets where, you know, because of the demand, because of a limited number of, you know, contract professionals, whether it be plumbers or electricians or whatever, they're charging higher prices, you know, so it's going to cost you more to get your R&M done at the property and keep the property running than it would otherwise because of something like that. So really knowing those details of the market are important. And I could go on and on with, with <laughs> different, you know, different things around the country that you see in one place that are different than another place. But that's the nuts and bolts of it is you're not going to be able to pick out those trends unless you're looking at enough deals. Got it. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice and and on how we're gonna end this too. And, and it leaves me with a lot of homework and, and figuring out figuring out how to find these deals and, and start underwriting and start getting well, these reps in. Once you've gotten your reps in, 
we can do an episode on what you've discovered. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's... And, and real, we can break down what you've gone through. Okay. No, I actually, I, that's a good idea. That is a great idea. I would love to do that. You know, and then it could, you could, you could look at which ones are way overpriced or way underpriced that I'm not accounting for. And it's really just give me a really hands-on real moments of if, if my underwriting, underwriting was great or if it was a, if it was shit. <laughs> no, I mean, and yeah. I mean, it's like, honestly, I guess what I would point out is sometimes the underwriting to your point, you know, you, you asked, does anyone just do their underwriting based on what's current and actual at the property and not with judgment, but that's a lazy underwrite. I mean, if you want to buy a property at, you know, a, a six cap and you just plug in the existing numbers and, Oh, it's six cap. Okay. Then you buy the property. But if you want to buy a property and you're trying to, you know, you're looking at 10 different deals and you're only going to buy one and you want to get the one that has the highest, you know, rate of return and the best cash on cash or something, you need to kind of know what you can do. And that's where the term value add comes in, whether it's reducing expenses, increasing income, improving the property in some way, protesting the taxes, um, getting a new trash contract, whatever it is, that's how you add value. And, and it's really hard to add value if you're just basing your numbers off of someone else's numbers, yeah. you know, the seller's numbers. So. And in a way, I feel like if you are just basing it off the seller's numbers, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot too. And well, I was thinking like sometimes like, let's say it's like it is overpriced. So you being a little too conservative too, where you're not really seeing what you can get. Am I, am I correct in that statement that sometimes you. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't ever fault someone for being too conservative, falling down on the conservative side. I think being conservative, particularly in this stage of the market cycle is important. If you bought property in 2010, you would have made a lot of money in the last 10 years. Even if you mismanaged the property and did everything wrong, you'd probably have made some money. But right now we're cap rates are so low and valuations are so high and things are trading so tight. And a lot of these deals maybe have already been turned over by two or three different owners in the last decade. You really need to underwrite deals that much better because you don't want the market to turn on you and leave you upside down. I think conservative underwriting is good, but there's a difference between conservative underwriting and just like slapping the highest number that you've ever seen for R&M and the highest number that you've ever seen for, you know, like if you take, you pull some comp data, whatever, wherever you get your data, you pull some comp data and you just take the highest expense from every comp and you apply it to your property. You may say, oh, I, I can only get to a, a purchase price of a million dollars. Mm -hmm. But somebody's going to buy that property for $3 million and they're going to make money on it. They, because, you know, instead of going to 1500 a door in R&M, they underwrote to a reasonable, even conservative number of a thousand a door, or instead of you know, plugging in a 8% management fee, they talked to a management company that would do it for six. Instead of just taking the seller's number for trash, they went and, and negotiated a contract for less with, with a trash company or something like that. You know, 
all of those things, you can be conservative. You know, if the trash company tells you 500 bucks a month, you can underwrite to 550 bucks a month if you want, because you think, oh, well, maybe next year they'll increase it on me and I don't want to be stuck. That's good. That's good That's underwriting. Great. Yeah. But to not do that legwork and then just pick the conservative number and say, I just can't get there. You know, you go tell the seller, oh, I, I'm sorry, I just can't get to your, your whisper price. That's not going to get the job done. And I do know investors that do that. And whether it's because of, you know, time constraints or what, they don't really dig into their numbers very well. And they, they don't really look at how the property is going to operate or how they can operate the property. To your point, it shoots themselves in the foot because then they don't, they don't ever win a deal. You know, and, and at the end of the day, if you want yeah. to be a real estate investor, you have to have a deal. You have to buy a deal at some point. And that's where underwriting gets critical. And and that's why you see some of these syndicators and, and big investors that seem to make money on every deal they do. And it's because they've done so many deals and they've looked at so many deals and they know the levers that they can pull at each property and they know they may see a property that has separately metered electricity, but the landlord's paying it all. So they mm. go in, they buy the property, and all of a sudden, boom, they're as leases roll over, they're having the tenants pay their own electricity. And that's value add that if they didn't dig in, they didn't do their diligence, if they didn't know what to look for because of all the reps that they had gotten, they would have missed that value add. And if they didn't factor in that value add into their calculations into their offer, someone else might have bought the property for, you know, the price that they did because they came in too low or something like that. So underwriting is really what makes the difference for real estate investors. It's yeah, great no, to yeah. buy a deal that is turnkey and you don't have to really underwrite it because you know it's already operating at, at its optimal state, but that's pretty rare. Mm. And most people want to drive drive some sort of value add. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. And I'll, I'll, on that note, I think that's a great note to just to, just to end on too, because we are way over time. Yeah, we're way over. Yeah, no, but I appreciate right. no, but I appreciate you just like taking the time and just really breaking it down between like, you know, just the different nuances that when it comes to underwriting, because I feel like underwriting, you know, I'm not gonna lie, I thought it was pretty simple. And then when I started diving into it more, I was like, dang, there's a lot I really don't know about any of this stuff. And so I'm definitely going to even take myself back and listen, listen in on this episode too, and, and yeah. take, take a lot of your advice. Well, so. that's the thing. I mean, like I said, if we were coming out of a recession, if prices had bottomed out and, you know, delinquencies had bottomed out and the real estate market was just junk and, and we were kind of starting the slow climb back to, uh, to a stable, you know, prosperous market, then you would be able to just take some plugs and say, okay, this is where I think it's going to be. I'm going to bank on 2% cap rate compression between my purchase and by the time I sell or refinance or whatever. And, and you'd make money, right? I mean, you'd, right. you'd assume that people are going to pay or whatever. But at this point in the market cycle, when there, there are properties that traded, I don't know, five years ago that are selling for 60% more or a hundred percent more or 200% more than they did then. 
And, you know, when you're buying a property like that doesn't mean it's not a good business still. It doesn't mean you still can't make money on it, but you need to know what happened. There's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot, you climb to the top. There's a long way down if you don't do it right. And, and uh, if you're still at the bottom, you know, you fall off a roller coaster at the very bottom before yeah. you even get going is not much of a problem. You just you know, bump your head and call it a day. But if you fall off a roller coaster at the top, uh, it could be devastating. So, <laughs> yeah. So it, that's what I would say is now is not the time to be overly aggressive. Now is not the time to be trimming every number everywhere and underwriting the slimmest possible debt. I mean, let's just take that one example. I mean, if someone went under contract two months ago and everything was as slim as they could get in their underwriting, and they said, oh, I also think I'm going to hope that rates go down 10 basis points by the time I close. Well, now they're up 40 basis points. And since that person hoped that they would go down 10, now they're up 50. That 50 basis points could just crush the deal. Yeah. And in terms of the loan amount that they might get, I mean, that 50 basis points, depending on the size of the deal, could chop a few hundred thousand or a couple million off their loan amount, which means that they have to bring a couple million more to the table. And if you have to bring a couple million more to the table, just think, I mean, you and all your all your listeners can put that in your model and see what that does to your returns. It, it could make a deal not make any sense to do. So I just don't think right now is the time to be overly aggressive in your underwriting. And I, I would say that the investors that I see doing good deals and, and continuing to make money in this market are the ones that paid attention and done you know, really done their homework and learned how to underwrite and what to look for in, in deals. And so they're able to pick out, even if they're buying a deal that traded, you know, for $20,000 a unit less four years ago, they're able to pick out the, the triggers, the, the levers that they can pull to make money on that deal. To make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's the, uh, <laughs> That's the name of the game. It's the name. Right? I mean, it's like you got to be the. This isn't. This isn't like anyone that that puts their name in the hat is going to get a get a prize. I mean, you got to work at it, and anybody can get a deal if you overpay for it. And if you overpaid for a deal in 2010, you probably did all right. If you overpay for a deal in 2021, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see what you happens. Try it out and let me know. Awesome. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way that people get in touch with you just to have a conversation or even to, yeah, what's the best way to, for people to get in contact with you? Yeah. Email, phone, I'll take a phone call too, but email is probably easier because I spend most of my day on the phone, so I might miss you. But my email address is david.fraz at lumen.com. You can probably share that with them yeah. somehow. Yeah, no, I'm going to put it in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And my, my, my office line is uh, 703-663-5886. So if someone needs to get me, can't wait for me to respond to an email, they can certainly call. And if I don't, I don't pick up, they can leave me a voicemail. So well, one well. way or another, I'll, I'll return the call or, or the email and, and get connected. Well, actually going to get a voicemail saying like, Hey, I'm in big trouble. I need, <laughs> I need to, I need your help right away. <laughs> bail, bail me out of it. Okay. Yeah. Bail me out of it. 
just like we were talking about. But awesome. Thank you so much, David, for, for coming through. And, and I learned a lot from this episode. And I'm going to be listening to this episode on repeat for, for a while, just because there, there's a lot of terminology that, you know, I, I'm still getting familiar with. And, you know, I'm definitely going to take yeah. reps and uh, the underwriting exercises that, that we were talking about to, to, to practice. What I find is these conversations often breed more and more questions. And so, yeah, you or anybody else and feel free to connect and I'm happy to clarify anything that I, that I wasn't clear about. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And everybody that's listening to this, thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day, nights, whatever you're doing right now. Hope, hope it's fun. Thanks. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.